The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. <clears throat> a Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him, bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray. God, we are grateful for the gift to come together on this wet day in this dry space to be reminded of your goodness among us, to be warmth not only by the heating system, but also by your spirit and by the sense of community that we can have with one another. And so as we still our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you might want to say to us, invite us into, challenge us, us, challenge us with today. We ask that you would clear away the things that clutter our hearts and our minds so that we might be fully present to receive that which you are wanting to offer to us. Speak through me and through our guest speaker, um, Jennifer, um, because of us and maybe sometimes a little bit also in spite of us um, so that your word might be heard clearly and we might leave this space transformed. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 
The conversation in our passage happens just after Jesus had sent out his crew of 72 to do some good old-fashioned door knocking. And not so much in a, if you died today, where would you go kind of way, uh, but more like a, is this really what you want the world to look like? And Jesus gave them some pretty direct instructions. If the people open their homes, stay a while. But if they don't, if they reject you, walk away and don't even bother to look back. In other words, don't waste your time on people who not only don't want to get it, but also aren't even decent enough to extend you basic kindness. So when Jesus encounters this scholar who's questioned, what must I do to gain eternal life? Um, Jesus uh, is in that kind of framework. And so he responds to the one question with two of his own. Well, what does the law say, he says, and how do you interpret it? Because Jesus is less interested in right answers than he is in right relationships. And while it's not clear to me whether the scholar intentionally ignored that second question, but Jesus sees that this guy is just out here looking for trophies, right? So he gives him one. You are correct. Gold star, pat on the back, on your way. But the scholar doesn't go on his way. He lingers. But who exactly is my neighbor, he asks. Ah, this question, who is my neighbor, was, and maybe still is, a hot topic of debate. Being a neighbor in both Jewish law and Near Eastern custom obligated you to some things. You had to care about them. You had to be sure that you were treating them fairly. And you had to offer them the same kind of rights and benefits as you treated yourself. Things like a Sabbath, fair dealing, just wages, and treatment upon the fulfillment of indentured servitude. It is not only inconvenient to have a neighbor, it is also costly. Which is why people were constantly jockeying to try and cut out some folks. And the scholar brings this debate to Jesus. Maybe he wants to get Jesus' opinion, or maybe he just wants to be off the hook for having to care. Either way, Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, tells a story. A person is beaten, robbed, and left for dead on the side of the road leading to Jericho. Now, scholars will tell you that this particular road is rough. The terrain is steep and rocky, and it was even less safe when it came to who you might run into. Anyone who heard this story as Jesus was telling it would instantly know what he was talking about when he mentioned the Jericho Road. So the scene is set. Down the road comes a priest who spies the victim far enough ahead of time to cross to the other side. He may have wanted to do something about it, but well, you know, being a priest, he can't risk defiling himself with what might be a dead body. That would make him unclean, and then he wouldn't be able to lead tomorrow's Sunday service, which is really Friday, but really this is about us, not them, right? Rules are rules. Then along comes a Levite, not as important as a priest, but still integral to the workings of the church. After all, without the Levites, the candles wouldn't be lit, the communion elements wouldn't be set out, and the heat wouldn't get turned on ahead enough time to warm the sanctuary before service. He just can't chance it. So the respectable people with full schedules and lots of responsibilities can't be bothered to stop. But then along comes a Samaritan. Dun, dun, dun. At this point, everybody knows something's about to go down because Samaritans were definitely not in the same category as a priest or a Levite. There's a whole background story that stretches all the way back to the days of the prophet Jeremiah. But suffice it to say that Samaritans were like the mudbloods of Judaism. Half-breeds, counterfeits, religious mutts. Not just a class below a priest and a Levite, but defectors and defilers of the faith itself. So, this Samaritan comes down the road, and rather than ignoring or avoiding or looking away, Jesus says he is moved with compassion 
and stops. Now, I am 100% sure when this guy woke up that morning, packed his bag, and walked out the front door, he was not thinking that the wine and oil he'd be lugging around would be poured out and used up on some, some who knows what kind of stranger on the side of the road. His itinerary did not include stopping by an inn to drop off a half-conscious body along with a day's worth of wages for someone he had never met and might never see again. There is no indication that he was a doctor, a wealthy person, or even a particularly smart person, but the way Jesus tells it, there is no hesitation. He didn't know everything, but he knew what was the right thing, and so he did it. Which one was the neighbor, Jesus asks. And while he knows all the debates and disqualifications, has read all the think pieces and hot takes, while he knows every argument and counter-argument on the issue, the answer is clear as day for that scholar. Tomorrow is a holiday that took nearly 15 years to make. While most legislators would have preferred to leave the history of civil rights efforts and leaders far behind in the history books, Coretta Scott King, along with many colleagues and partners, called, wrote, petitioned, and knocked tirelessly on the doors of lawmakers to get a bill passed that would commemorate not just the person, but the work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And once Stevie Wonder got involved recording his song, Happy Birthday, the tide had finally turned. In 1983, Martin Luther King Jr. Day was passed as a federal holiday, and while it might be tempting to take it as an opportunity to sleep in, catch up on laundry, or just not go anywhere, the purpose of the holiday is intended to not only spend a day in service to your community, but also carry forward the legacy of Dr. King's work. To dismantle what he called the giant triplets of racism, extreme militarism, and materialism to get involved where we can, how we can, and with whatever we can, to chip away at the things which destroy our bonds to one another and undermine God's vision of wholeness of life for all. A couple of months ago, I reconnected with Danny Kaplan, an organizer that I knew who had worked at Chicago's Jewish Council of Urban Affairs. Together, under the leadership of organizers on Chicago's South Side, I worked successfully with my congregation, Urban Village Church, to push administrators at the University of Chicago to open a trauma center in the area because people were dying from gunshot wounds because they couldn't get to the hospital in time. Turns out that Danny had relocated to the Bay Area a couple of years earlier. And so when I moved out here in August, he reached out, and we reconnected last month. And as I reflected on how we could um, honor Dr. King's legacy here at City Church, I was like, I need to talk to Danny, see if he knows anyone, right? I asked if he knew anyone I could highlight who had organized for systemic change here in San Francisco, and boy, was I glad I did. Today, I'm very glad to invite Jennifer Esteen to come and join me up here. Jennifer is a registered nurse a mother and community leader serving in the Alameda Health System Board of Trustees and the Eden Municipal Advisory Council. She has spent her career delivering care to the most vulnerable, first as a psychiatric nurse in the San Francisco General Hospital Psychiatric Emergency Room, and now with San Francisco residents who have severe mental illness. In her work, Jennifer has helped clients to navigate the vicious cycle that patients experience from diminished funding for mental health care. She's a champion for working families and an advocate for policies that will keep our communities safe and healthy. So please join with me in welcoming Jennifer here to City Church. So as I, I was talking with Jennifer a week or so ago, getting to know her a little bit more, 
Um, I was just amazed by her story uh, because, uh, as it turns out, um, she didn't move to the Bay Area to become an activist. So um, I was curious, uh, and, and I think it would benefit us to sort of hear a little bit more about, you know, how you ended up getting involved um, in organizing and activism. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to share today, Emily. Uh, I think it's only fitting that we are all here together uh, as we celebrate King Day and, and this day of what some people consider rest, but also what some people consider a day of service. Because we know Dr. King's legacy was one of immense service in this country and far beyond. And, you know, we heard in the scripture, we should love thy neighbor as thyself. Hmm. In my work as a nurse, I work with folks who have severe and persistent mental illness. And here in San Francisco, where we have thousands of people who are unhoused and struggle with all sorts of ailments related to substance use, mental illness, and just the, the rigors of being in the world, I began to notice my clients were cycling in and out of our emergency services. And at a time when I myself was a single parent and struggling just to make ends meet, I also was struggling to provide care for my clients. And I began to realize that it wasn't just that as a nurse it was hard to provide care, but that our system sometimes didn't allow for all of the resources that we need. Um, I began working with folks who actually are so impaired that they are housed in our system, which is beautiful. San Francisco has a wealth of resources, and one of the things that we provide are called boarding care homes. Along the way, there was a, a boarding care home that was gonna be closed. It was run by the city on the campus of General Hospital, and when I found out that it was closing, it was because a, a client walked up to me and said, here's an eviction notice, I'm losing my housing. And I became very disturbed. And I think one of, the, one of the things, we heard the definition of the Samaritan as those who are unclean and unholy, but in this country, we actually have laws that say you have to be a good Samaritan. That to be a good Samaritan is to actually help folks. That it's not about whether or not you are holy, whether or not you have right relationship in the, in the church or in the religious setting, but that you have right relationship with your neighbors. Mm. And so when I saw that my client was gonna be unhoused and that this facility was closing, I became very enraged. Mm. And uh, you know, there's something that Dr. King said, and it is that you should put aside your prestige, your position, even your life in service of others, because the welfare of others is that important. And I didn't know those words at the time, but I knew the feeling. Mm. I knew that my clients were gonna lose their housing. I wasn't gonna lose my job or my housing, but I couldn't stand for that to happen. And I led up a fight to save the adult residential facility on the campus of San Francisco General Hospital. And it was quite an intense battle with the city, with the health commission, but we won. The facility never closed, and that was such a huge victory that it told me something. It told me a lot of things, but ultimately it told me that when we stand up for folks whose voices are often ignored and unheard, that we can make a big difference. And that is a lesson that is indelible, that I will always carry, and that I began to share with others, hmm. with the clients who I was serving, who themselves were able to be listened to. It, it was life-changing for all of us. Hmm. So had you been involved like in activism or organizing very much previously? 
no, not at all. I was just <laughs> going to work and going home. I was just being a mom, but there was no way I could look mm -hmm. aside mm -hmm. in this moment when it felt like, you know, we've got so many folks in need and here we are providing a service, but the service was gonna be diminished. I just, I felt compelled, just yeah. like that the Samaritan on the road. I had no idea that I was gonna be using my oil and using my <laughs> wine to provide care in that way. I thought I would just be doing the same thing I do every day. But when the moment struck, I answered the call. Yeah. And I mean, I, what, I, what I hear too is that um, you're a single mom. Yeah, I was then. Was, yeah, was a single, were, were a single mom, um, trying to just make sure that you're like doing the things that you need to do to hold things down. Um, and so it's not like you've got a lot of spare anything um, mm -hmm. to come around. So I'm curious about like, what were some of the calculations you had to make? Cause now, all right, if you're gonna start organizing against your employer, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, that kind of, I feel like that kind of puts you at risk in some kind of way. Right. Um, and, um, and so what were some of the calculations that you made in order to sort of assess like, it's worth it, yeah. you know, here are the other things that I can think about in order to make sure that um, I feel like I can, I can do this um, and, and not, um, or maybe not even going down that road, right? Yeah. What, what were the calculations you had to make? I think the calculations came in the gift of being a member of a union, because mm. even though I knew that I was putting my professional reputation on the line, I also knew that I had union protection. So should something happen, then I felt pretty sure. I wasn't 100% sure, but I was pretty <laughs> sure that I wouldn't lose my job. Well, one day, you know, this, this fight became quite contentious. We, we went to the health commission to see if we could talk with the health commission. We wanted to present to them the issue. My clients even got on the bus, left their home. These are folks who, you know, were like shuffling in their gate didn't really have uh, resources for catching the bus, but this was their housing. Everything was on the line. They joined us at the health commission and the health commissioners did not agendize our issue. They did not want to hear from us. Mm -hmm. They told us not even to have public comment. And that was the moment that I knew that things are gonna be different. We shut the health commission meeting down and uh, that was around five o'clock on like a Tuesday whenever the meeting was held. The next morning I went to work and my computer was missing from my desk. Right, and you know, it was like that was the level of scrutiny that I was under, that was the level of, mm. of risk that I was taking, and I had to have some quiet conversations with myself. Uh, I had to go home and have a quiet conversation with uh, my partner. We were dating at the time, and I was like, okay, so this is risky. What's gonna happen here? Um, is it worth it? And all of the answers kept coming back to me. It's worth the risk, yes, this is difficult. We might not even win this fight, but we have to keep trying mm -hmm. because the risk is too great mm -hmm. for folks who can't even fix their own meals mm -hmm. and manage their own laundry or their medication. Like, they have everything to lose. Mm -hmm. Who am I to say that my comfort is above theirs? Mm -hmm. And like I said, we won. So <laughs> it was totally worth it. Turns out, yeah. Right. One of, the, one of the things that I hear in your story, too, is like, um, is that uh, this came out of a place of relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, you know, yeah. these are kind of like 
the faceless numbers. I mean, yeah. to some extent, it eventually becomes that, right? But but these are people who you had you had built relationships with, mm -hmm. and and so it wasn't easy for you to just if things got too hot or too hard to walk away because you had names, you had faces, mm -hmm. you had stories of people that you had come to, uh, if not love, then at least care about, um, and and. Um, so I can imagine, I, I, I think that one of the things about organizing that can be really powerful is that um, it's not just an idea, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an actual relationship. It's a, with a person or creation, you know, sort of depending on in what spaces you find yourself. Um, and so, uh, but things were hard and you had to do these calculations. And so I'm kind of wondering like what, there's the relationship piece, which is compelling and will pull you along, mm -hmm. um, but what, like sustained you in the work, especially when you st started to feel that um, the kind of threat or the in, um, intimidation getting really close to you, um, or you know when you were if you at points you were starting to feel like you know we're pushing and pushing and nothing is moving. Right. Um, what kept you in? I think organizing is quite difficult, and it can be arduous. It can be a long process. It, the one lesson that I've learned that always seems to come back is every small victory matters. And even when it doesn't seem like a victory, you know, it started off with a client coming to me saying, I'm going to lose my housing. And they felt comfortable coming to me because mm. they felt like they could trust me to share mm. the information. But, you know, we started off by having tiny little worker meetings. And I think the first victory was somebody showed up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like 15 people showed up at 6 a.m., right when their shift was ending and signed in on a sign-in sheet. And I was like, wow. And then we did the same thing at 4 o'clock and another 15 people showed up. That was the first victory. We were able to have a conversation about what was happening and how other people felt. And I realized I wasn't the only one who recognized the injustice. Mm -hmm. And then we had a late-night meeting. This will forever be burned in my head. 7 p.m., long day of work, cold winter night, we're sitting in, a, in a, a small room, three of San Francisco's supervisors came to our meeting. It's like 10 workers. It felt so anonymous. And suddenly these leaders were there paying attention because we had started to make noise and we were starting to get noticed. When those three people started yelling at each other, <laughs> the shock that I felt but also, it began to become very real mm. that it wasn't just my feeling of injustice. It wasn't just the workers feeling the injustice and the people who were going to lose their housing. Other people were noticing. Mm. And so as we began to build a little momentum every step along the way, quitting became less possible. Mm. Giving up mm. became less mm. realistic because we were actually making progress. But it's not like you're Martin Luther King and you're, you know, like preaching on the mount every time because, right. you know, you have to build, you have to get there. And so tomorrow, yeah. showing up for the march in unity with other congregations and other people and other families, that's a step along the way. Right. And, you know, at a certain point, we also can say to the, the greater thing, you know, what I appreciate about Martin Luther King is in his journey, he did move beyond the South. He moved mm -hmm. beyond segregation. He recognized that an injustice 
anywhere is, in, is an injustice everywhere. And I think knowing that there are millions of children in this country that go to bed hungry every night, knowing that there are tens of thousands of people in the Bay Area, in California, all over this country who are sleeping outside, whose beds and pillows are made of rocks, like that is horrible in a country where we have billions of dollars to send to support a war machine. Mm. In the last 20 years, America has spent $20 trillion on war. So we start tomorrow with a march, and we continue on. And whatever it is that you feel needs to improve, whether it's feeding our neighbors, clothing our neighbors, ending war, we all have to take steps every day. And we can build from ourselves to outside in our community to more and more. Yeah, there was, uh, toward the end of his uh, life, um, uh, he was, build, he was making those connections mm -hmm. um, around materialism and militarism, and it wasn't just, it's, but it started with a, real relationships with people in his own neighborhood, yeah. and slowly but surely kind of following that thread. And I think that that's the thing, is it can be really easy to sort of look at the big picture and sort of feel like it's too big, mm -hmm. right? Um, but there's this other piece around start with where you are. After ch telling his story, Jesus asked the scholar, which one was the neighbor? Which one, um, you know, and if you're not paying attention, um, you don't realize that Jesus is sort of pulling like a Jedi mind trick um, because he changes the question, the original question, from who is my neighbor to how can I be a neighbor? And in this, neighbor then shifts from being a noun to a verb. Neighbor isn't an idea for debate or a concept to be considered. It's a need to be acted upon and a response to anyone who, cross your who crosses your path. Rather than asking who's in or out, it assumes that everyone is in. And this is a fundamental shift for the scholar. And maybe for us too, right? That it's not just a person, but it's an action. It's a response that we engage in now that we have connected with someone. And so I'm kind of curious for you, after this, um, that what, after the victory of this particular campaign, um, there was, I think, uh, as I understand it, kind of a shift and a broadening um, in your viewpoint um, to these bigger challenges, and you kind of started to, to nibble at that um, just now. How did that, how did that start to, to change the trajectory of your thinking and, um, and kind of vocational decision-making? It's a great question. You know, I think it, it, having a victory, having that win, behind me felt like anything was possible. You know, if we could go from folks who typically are ignored, you know, how many times have we seen someone who maybe is a little bit out of our mind and we do what the Levite did or we do what the priest did and we cross the street? One, maybe out of fear for our own safety, one, because we don't know what to do, or, you know, maybe we pick up the phone and call 911, but then when the police show up, we're not really there. It, there's all these decision moments decision points. I, I think that for me it was like, okay, we won. And people started to also recognize that a thing that I never recognized in myself, which is that I'm a, a, a natural organizer. I, I really enjoy connecting with people and connecting people to each other. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. when folks are uh, interested in certain things or they're like, oh, you know, I visited this place and I did that. And I'm like, oh my God, you and you, you guys should talk because you're into the same thing. Right. Folks started to recognize that I was an organizer and I was offered an opportunity to become the vice president of organizing for my union, SEIU 1021. I took up that challenge and started to organize nationally 
with the Fight for 15 and to support fast food workers. I started to support nurses in other parts of the country. In uh, uh, Minnesota, hmm. Scott Walker decimated the unions statewide and there was huge pushback. After he termed out and was no longer governor, there was an opportunity for nurses to become unionized again and for all workers, state employed, government employed nurses and teachers and all sorts of folks who traditionally had been unionized to, to start the efforts again. And so I supported those kinds of efforts. And uh, there's so much that we can do in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I think that for me, it was like the blinders came off. Another gift was that my kids got a little older and I didn't need to be home with them every single moment, cooking and cleaning and you know, watching and monitoring. So, you know, I think that there's opportunity for work to be done all over the place as life kinds of also has its own journey. Yeah. And, you know, now I'm, I'm back with uh, the city of San Francisco working with my clients again, and that feels very gratifying. Mm. And we're serving on the Alameda Health System Board of Trustees, helping to ensure that we take on uh, the real mantle of equitable practice and equitable outcome within the health system. I think that, you know, there's so many places that we can be busy and often feel busy, but we have to get busy because it, it takes us sometimes to be in many places all at once and also to encourage our friends and our neighbors to help lighten our load because I can't be everywhere. You can't be everywhere. So, you know, three, three moments of service options all over San Francisco next Sunday we all get to do a little bit. And I think when we all pick up a little bit of the burden, it becomes lighter. That's right, that's right. Um, and I, this, this idea of like, we can, we can do something, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. the scholar in, in our passage today um, had a difficult time kind of wrapping his mind around that from moving from theory to practice, right? Um, the priest let the regulations and traditions block him from what he knew was right. The Levite decided kind of like it wasn't his problem. They all looked away, but Jesus makes it clear that if we want to follow him, we cannot look away. We cannot look away. We cannot look away because there is too much to see. There's Keenan Anderson, the high school English teacher and father who, after trying to flag down help in the wake of a car accident, was recently killed after being re repeatedly tased by LAPD. Or those LGBTQIA folks in our city who have been ejected from their families, have no safety net, and constantly are living on the edge of being unhoused. Or even here, at City Church, those among us, and they are among us, who have been assaulted because of AAPI-targeted violence. As we think about Dr. King's legacy, about what it means to carry forward today, that today here in San Francisco, our question shouldn't be, who is my neighbor, but rather, how can I be a neighbor? Not, what can I do, but rather, where should I start? And so let's not be like the priest, allowing laws and norms to justify our avoidance. Or like the Levite, letting custom and preference keep us away. Instead, let us be like the Samaritan, refusing to get numb and allowing our hearts to be moved. To let our response be one that moves us to act in whatever way, with whatever we have, through service and through the work of justice, to not only have compassion, but also courage. Courage that empowers us to confront, dismantle, abolish, and rebuild those policies that abuse, those institutions which exclude, those fraternities and cultures which breed silence, everything which undermines God's vision of wholeness of life for all. 
Let's renew our commitment to do better by a God who has done better by us. So moved by compassion for those who are struggling to find dignity and human connection in an undignified and inhuman society. So moved was Jesus that he ultimately was executed by the state. Who constantly put himself out there for those who were who were um, abandoned, who had dared to risk his reputation and respectability to invite people who were despised or disregarded, women, chronically ill and disabled persons, poor people, questioning people, bill collectors, Jesus who stood for them and stood for, stands with us. We can do better by him. And we don't have to do it perfectly. And we can't do it all, but we can. Each of us do something. One simple way is by joining me tomorrow as I join the San Francisco Unity Coalition, a black and Jewish-led organization working towards systemic justice in this city and beyond, to join them tomorrow for the march. To join in next Sunday in some kind of service activity, one of the ones that we're offering, or something else altogether that you're involved in. Let's walk alongside each other. Because like we sang earlier, we don't have to be alone. God calls us to be in community with one another to stand shoulder to shoulder, hand to hand, to do God's work in whatever way we can with whatever we have. To be an expression not only of God's grace in this beloved city, but also a symbol of solidarity in order to build a more just San Francisco. We don't have to do it perfectly, and we can't do it all, but we can do something and do it with love for God who loved us first. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to join you in your work of wholeness of life for all. We thank you for Jen's work and the work of so many others who came alongside her, other leaders, elected officials, as well as people whose names we will never know, people who came up to her to share their story that moved her. We thank you for all the folks who are like Jen, which might be just everyone in this room too, who you are inviting to do your work we ask that you would empower us, strengthen us, bind us together in your love, and move us for your purpose in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.